Welcome to the politicalbetting.com Polling Matters podcast. My name is Kieran Pedley. Well, usually on this show, you see some sort of combination of myself and Leo Barassi talking about the polling and what it all means and looking through the numbers in detail. But regular listeners to the show will know that every so often we like to have a guest from outside polling to come on and talk a little bit about how they work with numbers, but also what their perspective is on the current political situation. And this is one of those episodes. On this week's show, I was joined by former advisor to Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, Theo Bertram, and we discussed a host of issues around the Labour Party, the independent group, and what the numbers are saying. And Theo also gave his um, perspective on strategy and how the Labour Party should respond to recent events. So here is that conversation. So I'm delighted to be joined by Theo Bertram. Uh, Theo, welcome to Polling Matters. I'm very happy to be here. So um, for the benefit of people that maybe aren't sort of plugged into the Twitter world and the, the Westminster bubble and that sort of thing, um, why don't you explain a little, a little bit about your work in the Labour Party? So I'm a New Labour era uh, party staffer. Uh, I work for the Labour Party for uh, just over a decade in a number of different roles. I basically kind of did every role that there is in the Labour Party. I started off as a regional organiser working on local election campaigns and then did a bit of time as a researcher to an MP, ended up working for the party uh, in uh, in Victoria Street, the headquarters then on um, education policy. And then I spent a few years working on the attack team in probably the dirtiest election that there ever was, um, where uh, my job was to do things like go undercover and record Oliver Letwin or various other figures saying things that they really shouldn't be saying publicly. And that so was which, which, ele- which election was that then? That was a 2005, which was dominated by a quite bitter and vicious battle between Labour and the Tories and a series of leaks from the Tories or misspoken steps where their secret plans were constantly being revealed uh, in the mirror, especially in the Times. Um, and that was a lot of fun um, and taught me a lot of the kind of craft of politics and um, and then I lucked out in that summer of 2005, where a bunch of us were handed the task of researching who might be the next Tory leader. And at that point, I think the two favourites were David Davis and Liam Fox. And I was given the task of researching this little known fellow called David Cameron, who was considered to be <laughs> an outsider. So I, I spent my summer reading everything they possibly uh, could find. I read every parish magazine that David Cameron had ever contributed to. I went through every uh, copy of his college newspaper on the microfiches at the British Library. I read every speech. Uh, I watched every uh, YouTube video. This was in the early days of kind of social media, and Cameron was a leader on that. And I learned everything I possibly could about him. I looked at the um, company's house reports where every company had ever been involved with uh, and I went through all of the uh, old clips of Norman Lamont when he used to work for him and wonderfully kind of, you know, were looking for pictures of him. I found one of him skulking in the background just as Norman Lamont declared uh, 15% interest rates during Black Wednesday. So th- I did that for a while and then um, he became leader and that was my kind of lucky break. It then meant that I was the person that uh, Tony Blair 
would go to for advice on like what's cam- camera going to do at PMQs. And um, eventually I was given a role in number 10 as a special advisor to Tony Blair, working on Prime Minister's Question Time. And, and my work was really focused on trying to anticipate what Cameron would do, what his policies were, where was he coming from, what could we do about this new Tory leader. And um, and then I stayed when Gordon came. I'd always been a Labour person, not so much a Blairite or a Brownite. I know no one thinks that's a distinction anymore, but back in the days, that was really quite a... a long time ago, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And um, so I stayed. And uh, I think there were two special advisors that stayed, and I was one of them. And then I stayed with Gordon all the way through to the very bitter end of uh, the new Labour era. And um, I had a lot of fun at the end where one of my jobs was to pretend to be Nick Clegg when we were practising for the leadership debates. And so I would get the opportunity to stand up every week and or more frequently than every week, nearly every day. Alistair Campbell would prepare, pretend to be David Cameron. Gordon Brown would obviously pretend to be Gordon Brown and I would pretend to be Nick Clegg and then it would be quite great fun to actually have the opportunity to kind of go quite hard at those two guys while um, uh, pretending to be Nick Clegg and so, so that was a lot of fun. So that, that must be, uh, I'm trying to think of the bosses I've had over the years, probably none of them as, as fearsome as Gordon Brown. Uh, how, how was that then having to attack your boss in a sort of, yes it's role playing but still that must be uh, a bit well, hairy? I, I mean I had the, I had the honour uh, if you want to call it that, of often being the bearer of bad news to Gordon in the time that I worked with him. My job you know, to prepare him for PMQs, he needs to be ready to know what is the worst thing that a Tory MP is going to stand up and say across the back benches to him. And so you know, I would regularly be telling him, by the way, you should be aware that this story is here. And he'd look at me aghast as if it was the thing that I was telling him um, myself. But yeah, there was definitely the effect. I remember we were sitting very near the end of the campaign. We were, it was, I think it was the day after Mrs. Duffy, and we were on the train back to London. And I sat across the aisle from him in one of those tiny cramped um, tables on a train where I'm trying not to bump my knees into his huge knees. And he looked across at me with this glum look. And I could see he just had the look as if I was Nick Clegg. You know, it was that kind of... You know, he wasn't happy. Um, but I think sometimes, you know, it, it, sometimes he looked at me as if I had become Nick Clegg. Um, and that wasn't a particularly favourable view. Um, but, yeah, he is, uh, you know, he, I think history will remember both him and Blair more fondly than perhaps they are currently seen. But I think it's going to take quite a bit of time for that. A fair bit of time, I imagine, looking at, looking at the numbers. I mean, I want to come on to the modern day. But before we do, I mean... This is a polling podcast. I mean, I don't know how much interaction you ever had with the numbers or what the focus groups were saying and that sort of thing. I'm just curious as to how that sort of fed into political strategy and if there were any differences between the way, let's say, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown viewed that sort of information. Um, well, you know, the first thing I would say is, you know, you need a political strategy. Um and uh, you know, however useful polling can be, it's not a substitute for having a clear direction and a clear strategy but where polling can help is in thinking about like how your strategy what parts of it can you dial up what parts should you dial down what's having impact what is resonating what are people picking up on Um, the broad trends over time you know and I think polling always needs to be taken with a pinch of salt when you're 
a politician. But at the same time, I think any politician who says they don't pay attention to the polls or that they're ignoring them is probably not telling the truth. And uh, and if they are telling the truth, they will certainly be harmed by not using the information at their disposal. I think, you know, to give you an example of some of the ways that we used um, polling, you know, we would frequently complement it with focus groups because you can you can tell a lot from how a, a thousand people think about something, but you can tell something different from a group of 12 people talking in a rich conversation about actually what is the thing that might be uh, coming up or prompting a change. And you're always looking at the trends rather than kind of the, you know, the the day to day or the or the blips, um, but when Cameron first came in and we were really trying to get a grip on what should our messaging be, what what what's the story that we should tell around Cameron, we wanted to see what was resonating, and obviously we could see <coughs> that voters liked Cameron, and um, they liked the fact that he was new, and in the kind of in all of the polling we saw the kind of words that um, could be prompted and that might come up in the surveys and you know it was always that he was new um that he was moderate um that you know and 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 so there was a kind of limit to what you could get from the polling because it was kind of prompted words whereas in the unprompted um focus groups one of the things that came really resonated and surprised us was there'd been a story that Cameron had cycled into Westminster and this had been a lot, of, a lot of PR around how he'd cycled in and he was this new green um, uh, uh, Tory leader that uh, he was going to be very pro-environment um, but they'd found that following along behind him was his chauffeur carrying his bags in the back of his car and this story kept coming up unprompted in focus groups so we developed a, some attack lines around that, some messaging around that, because it resonated with something that was coming up in the polling groups, which was a suspicion that maybe he wasn't who we, you know, who we might be. Two-faced was a kind of word that came up. Mm. And once we combine those two things, look, here is a kind of thing, a story that's resonating together with something that the public already instinctively feel. That gave us quite an effective attack line at a time when there was very little that we could make stick on him. And so for PMQs after PMQs, um, I think this was very much in the early days of Cameron, um, when Blair was still leader, Blair would be crowbarring into PMQs, this, you know, this line anywhere he could, you know, that the, the, the fact that he uh, was on his bike with, a, with a, the chauffeur following along behind was indicative of a man who couldn't be trusted to genuinely be who he might appear on the tin. One thing I'm curious about, um, thinking about 2010, what, what did you? How did you feel after that election um, when all the results were in? Obviously, um, Labour lost in the sense of um, no longer being in government, so clearly you wouldn't have felt great. But did that go a lot better than you expected, or, or were you confident that um, it could be closer than maybe the poll suggested a year out? Because I mean, I think it's easy to forget at the time. It looked like Gordon Brown was heading for a, a crushing defeat, and you can argue about the vote share and how how that sort of um, was extrapolated to seats. And you know, as in, you can argue it was a crushing defeat, but it's just the seats didn't necessarily play that out as much as uh, it might otherwise have done. But I mean, I'm, I'm just curious, what was your reaction the, the morning after, or the week after, or when, whenever uh, Clegg and Cameron ended up in the rose garden, as it were? Well, the morning after, I booked um, to go on holiday with my uh, 
my girlfriend now wife who was then pregnant and I was like that's it I'm leaving and um uh, and and I remember being at the airport and um Gordon called me and was asking for information on the Lib Dems and I remember thinking like the numbers don't work this is crazy it's over you've got to go um quietly um <clears throat> and with your with your head held up um but I did think look we've we've stopped the Tories winning an outright the government and that that felt like an amazing um an amazing silver lining you know obviously you're gutted to have been defeated but i don't think it was any shock to anyone that we lost that election i think that was pretty clear long before mrs duffy happened but the fact that it, we ran it closer than anyone expected i think felt like uh, felt felt certainly not like a victory but felt that you know we had pulled something back from a much tougher place that we'd been in a year or so before and that people it showed people had real doubts about uh cameron and his government yeah the, the perception i get as someone that didn't wasn't wasn't working on the, those campaigns was that the ed Miliband defeat was probably more crushing for a lot of people within labor because a it was a majority but b there was a there was a sense of you know partly because of the polls that that actually you know, Labour could end up in government there in a way that maybe the expectation management was a bit better calibrated uh, in 2010. Let's um let's fast forward a fair amount of time though and, and talk about sort of where Labour is now. Obviously, a sort of I mean, turbulent doesn't really do it justice if you think about the the last sort of what was it four years or so now. I mean, let's do a potted history, shall we? So you know, Corbyn takes over. Obviously, lots of division well behind in the opinion polls. Um, Theresa May calls a general election thinking she's going to put Labour out of business virtually. Obviously, <laughs> to, to put it mildly, doesn't do that and, and, and now now doesn't have a majority without the DUP. I think the official figures actually suggest she doesn't have one, a working majority anyway at all uh, now. Um, and yet Labour is engulfed with the anti-Semitism crisis. Um, with our numbers at Ipsos Mori, um, Jeremy Corbyn's leadership ratings are worse than they have ever been, even be beyond um, what they were before the election that Theresa May called because she thought she was going to crush Labour. Um, so a really strange situation amid the back backdrop of a, um, nearly said backstop there, amid the backdrop of uh, Brexit and what, what happens in the next couple of weeks. I mean, where do you, you put Labour at the moment? Because I, I'll be honest, you know, as, as someone that you know, looks at the numbers, Went into 2017 thinking this is going to be a bloodbath. It obviously wasn't. I, I feel like I'm going to sit on the fence a little bit with what's going on because, um, you know, we've seen Labour in the doldrums and, and come roaring back before. Supporters of, of Corbyn and Labour will say that will happen again. And, you know, it may or may not. It's hard to rebut them convincingly. And frankly, from my perspective, it's hard to be convinced in, in doing so. So where, where do you... Piece this all together for me. Where are Labour at the moment? Yeah, so I think the first thing it's right to do, as you say, is to acknowledge that you know whether you're a pollster or whether you're a, a neoliberal Blairite warmonger, um, you know, or, or someone like me who's um, worked on previous Labour Party election campaigns that have been successful. Um, Corbyn has proved us all wrong on many occasions. And he is doing politics very differently. Um, 500,000 members, huge presence on social media, but completely ignoring the traditional uh, lobby and the traditional media. Um, it's a very different way of doing politics than the way that I learned. And he 
really outperformed um, all expectations in the in the last election, and who knows, he might do it again. I I, I felt confident predicting at the end of 2017 that 2018 was going to be a year of incredible volatility politically, and it proved to be completely opposite. The two main parties were stuck virtually on the same polling all the way through. But I do feel that the um, share of the vote that both Labour and the Tories have is very soft. What Labour did very well at the last election was to squeeze the vote. And by that, I mean that there were large groups of 27 Labour voters, 2017 Labour voters, who doubted Corbyn, who weren't sure in the run-up to the election where they were going to put their vote. And either because they felt that this was an ordinary, honest, decent man that was unlike other politicians, the kind of guy who spends time on his allotment, or because they didn't want a Tory government and the only way to stop it was to vote Labour. They came back to Labour um, and supported a, a, a manifesto that they loved, um, that was probably you know, fairly, um, uh, fairly, fairly, uh, uh, you know, social democratic, kind of middle of the road left. It wasn't the hardest left manifesto that there has ever been, but they felt comfortable voting for Labour and they came back in their droves, and that was despite bad media. It was through. Um, the con the the uh, social media campaigns and the big rallies that people mocked, they proved to be really effective, as well as having a huge voter turnout machine in the shape of five hundred thousand Labour members. So a lot of that remains in place. They still have those members, huge voter turnout machine. Um, they still have a very effective online media presence. And until three weeks ago. I would have said, you know, what is remarkable uh, about this Labour Party is that it has retained that sudden growth it got during the 2017 election campaign. And I would have also said Jeremy Corbyn should not be worried about his personal ratings because he can come back from that again. But in the last three weeks, I do feel Labour has turned a corner and it is not a happy one. I think the departure of the uh, first Labour MPs, the, the group of seven, was incredibly damaging. Um, you know, this is not really a question of what's going to happen with the independent group, or will they become a party, will they win seats? I, in a way, I kind of think that's irrelevant. I think the damaging thing is the, the harm that they've caused to um, Corbyn's personal ratings and to the Labour Party. I think even in the polls, where TIG is not included, we're seeing a big drop in Labour support and a big rise in Tory support. So that would worry me that when it comes to those critical set of voters, the 2017 Labour voters who doubt Corbyn, will they come back in the same volumes that they did last time? And I, that's where I, I would worry for Labour this time. But then to challenge that slightly, I mean, if you look at, and we don't know when the next general election is going to be, and that's the obvious caveat that I think is pretty self-evident to anybody listening to this. But, I mean, there is increasing murmurings, partly because of lack of a majority that May has, and partly because of Labour's troubles, that there could be an election quite soon, potentially, or maybe in the summer. And I look at it and think, well, it's very hard to distill 2017 into one sentence, 
but let's give it a go. It was supposed to be the Brexit election, but then it felt a bit like Brexit was masking lots of uh, dissatisfaction with austerity, to use that term. And I just wonder if there's another election, to sort of challenge slightly your narrative there, would not the same thing happen again? And in, in that, okay, it may or may not be over Brexit, and perhaps Brexit will be more salient if there is literally an election next week because of uh, the withdrawal agreement being voted down or something. But then all these questions about hospitals, about schools, and all the rest of it, wouldn't it be possible that those things actually start to trump Brexit again? And those 2017 waverers, and I, I've talked about this on this pod before, that yeah, there are a large number of Labour voters from 2017 that are very unhappy. But ultimately, they, they again, they hold their nose and vote Labour because the TIG machine just isn't really up and running. It's presented, presented as a sort of wasted vote that keeps the Tories in. I suppose the question really is, if these people, I don't know if they held their noses so much, but if these people voted Labour despite Corbyn two years ago, might not they do the same thing again? They might. Um, and I think I agree with your analysis that this isn't going to be a Brexit election, the next one. Yeah, I think even if it comes in the next few weeks, I think people care about many things other than Brexit. And I think they will vote for those reasons. I think it could be a good thing for Labour if health continues to be a really hot topic. That's a good battleground for Labour. I think Labour can squeeze the vote again and will increase its vote share. But the difference between now and last time is that Corbyn was relatively new. Now, I know that people will say that he'd been leader of the Labour Party for two years. But we know that the public pay very little attention to an opposition leader until an election. And that's when they're introduced to him for the first time or her. And that worked really well for Corbyn. He came across as someone who was new, who was different, who was fresh, who was honest and decent and ordinary. And all of those numbers, until recently, I would have said, were, were holding up reasonably well. They dipped, but they were still assets versus Theresa May. And now, I think the last few weeks has done damage to that. The reputation that Corbyn is gaining for being a bully, for anti-Semitism, for you know, maybe not being who people thought he was. And, and his newness is gone. You know, so I, I worry that some of those who harbour doubts about him as leader this time, those doubts are not going to go away. So I think that, that would be a concern. Like, why can they pull it off again? You know, I think that would be a concern. But what I would say is I think the best chance Labour has of doing well in an election is probably if the election is sooner rather than later. You know, and the Tories are almost certainly going to change leader before the end of the year. And unless they choose someone who is uh, awful, which you know the Tory party have done on several occasions before, um, unless the, you know unless they choose someone who's going to cost them votes, it's likely they will get a bounce. And then the risk is for Labour that Corbyn is further behind. And no longer is the new candidate or the, the candidate of change, but it's seen as being this guy who's been around for quite a while. Mm. I mean, out of curiosity, is there anybody on the Tory side that you think, your, your, at least your perception is that would be quite effective? I mean, you don't have to like their politics or anything like that, but just you think would be quite a sort of smooth operator at number 10? Or do you think actually until they're there, you can't really tell? 
I think which, it's which is probably the tell. combat answer, right? <laughs> but anyway. Well, I think, I think it is hard to tell the quality of a leader until they become leader. But I think you get some idea during the leadership campaign. I think leadership campaigns are still pretty good tests. And um, I think it'll be interesting to see who goes for it. I think it, the, the problem the Tories have is that the people who would best appeal to the country are those that are least likely to be chosen by the small group of Tory members that are doing the selection. So, you know, it is really up to the Tory MPs to put two good candidates in front of in front of the, that membership. And the risk for the Tory party, I think, is if they decide to keep going down the kind of ERG headbanging route and that they end up putting two people in front of that electorate with one of them there only because they represent an extreme view on Europe rather than because of their leadership skills. That would be an absolute gift for the Labour Party. And then I think the Labour Party could win on that basis. But um, the Tories are generally pretty good at uh, being fairly ruthless about picking leaders who are going to win. Um, but I think that's the big challenge. And I think there is, you know, there are clearly very experienced and competent politicians in and outside the cabinet on the Tory benches who could mount a challenge to Labour. Mm. I often say it's it's the Tory leadership campaign, we shouldn't assume that whoever emerges, I mean, you kind of alluded to it there, that whoever emerges is more popular than Theresa May. It may, you know, could easily go the other way if it's a, uh, let's say a Boris Johnson or someone who's polling. I, I used to write blogs on this. His, he used to poll extremely well uh, in the country and still polls well among certain groups. But obviously things have changed post-2016. Um, I want to come on to crisis management to finish the podcast. But before I do, just a briefly, briefly a word on the independent group, because I know you talked earlier about how you know that their influence on, on, on Labour, if you like, is, 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 is uh, re- relative to their um, the Labour MPs leaving. But I mean... W- where do you see them going? Because it seems that they do seem to be in the process of setting up a, a formal party. Um, but we know with first past the post, it's very, very difficult for them to to gain a foothold. Um, yeah, is this something that you see as a long term project or do you think that it's almost like a shot in the dark from these people? I think there is space clearly in the centre that has been vacated by both Labour and the, the Tories. Um and there are clearly votes there. I think it's very difficult to start a political party in the UK, but I think it's probably easier to do that now than at any time in history. And when you look across the rest of Europe, new parties have made great headway, you know, made made great um, made had, had great success, um, and there is no reason that um, they couldn't significantly increase their vote share, that they couldn't win a by-election or two here or there, and gradually grow themselves over the time. But I guess it's a question of what does success, what is the objective, what does success look like for that group? And I think if you think of it as being, you know, can they win a general election? And I think when you look at the polling on that, very few people think that's the case. I think you've got about 11% of people who think that they can win a general election. But could they do a UKIP? which is to say, without having any real parliamentary representation, can they steer the party of government towards a particular position? I think they probably can do that. You know, I think it's now 
going to be a measure of success for future Labour leaders, perhaps even future Tory leaders, who can win back those MPs that represent that group and the voters that they might acquire. Mm. It's going to be very interesting to watch. Um, so we talked about a Labour leader that is struggling to get his head out of a crisis behind in the polls. Leader, His personal ratings are tanking. This all feels like something relatively familiar to a time when you were in number 10. Um, so let's think about, if we, if we accept the premise that Labour's in a bit of a crisis, and I guess different people will have different opinions on that word, but let's assume Labour is in a tough spot right now. How do they how do they get out of it? Because, I mean, you've been there in number 10 with, with, with crises before. How you respond to them obviously dictates whether they grow or whether they can be put to bed. So, I mean... If you were there at Labour with Labour at the moment, what would you what would you be saying? What would you be devising? Well, I think the simplistic answer is you know change leader, swap leader, but but seems unlikely, right? And I don't think that's very helpful advice because even when you see polling that says that with a new Labour leader, the Labour would be ahead of the Tories. Now I remember when I worked with Gordon, we saw polls all the time that said something similar for him, but it was always. You know, an unknown Labour leader, a fictional Labour leader, the Labour leader of your dreams versus mm. versus Gordon, which is an impossible you know, uh, uh, challenge to measure up to. Whereas actually when you start to look at the individuals, there wasn't really someone that people hugely preferred or that showed that they would necessarily do a better job. So I kind of think simply saying swap leader is is too simplistic. My advice would be, partly to go back to the strengths uh, from 2017. And I think the manifesto is really strong, clearly popular with the public. And I would go back to trying to hit those notes again, trying to emphasize that. I think to do that, they probably need to think about whether they need to broaden their appeal um, beyond just Corbyn and his core group, and whether that actually they need, you know, I think, Critical for Labour now is to retain those Labour doubters in 2017 who voted for for them. So I think you need some non-Corbyn voices telling people to vote for Labour. Now I think Tom Watson, to some degree, is doing that at the moment, but in a kind of rebel way. And I think it would be better if Corbyn was to own that himself, to have people that he brought into his shadow cabinet that um, that don't need to be, you know, calling for the return of Tony Blair but are at least saying to uh, um, voters who probably voted for Blair and voted for Brown and perhaps voted for Miliband that they can vote for Corbyn and they can vote for this manifesto. So I think there's some kind of damage limitation on how many votes they're going to leak um, away. And then, the, and then in terms of TIG, I think the best thing to do is to really press down on the squeeze and by that, I mean, like, don't spend time attacking uh, TIG. You know, I, I, the comparison I think of is with the Liberal Democrats. You know, we used to always have a group of Labour MPs who would come to the attack team and say, oh, we want to meet the person, we want to meet the team working on the Liberal Democrats, we want to start the strategy. And we would have to pretend that someone was actually working on the Liberal Democrats and then pretend that uh, there was all this research going on, when in fact all we did um, was to focus ruthlessly on the Tories. Because you know the best way of dealing with TIG 
is to remind people that when push comes to shove, it's going to be Tory versus Labour. That's how our system works. And any vote for anyone but Labour is going to let the Tories in. And so you don't need to attack what TIG stands for. Or you, you can sympathise with why they left. You can, you, you, but I think kind of making them appear not as a new party, but as a adjunct of the Liberal Democrats or, you know, as anything, any vote for them is simply a vote that will support the Tories, you know, and ultimately that is the way to squeeze the vote and, and to have the success that, you know, or, if Labour wants to win, it's the only way. They have to bring more votes back. But, you know, as I say, I think it's a very tough position for Labour at the moment. Final, final question. I asked Twitter users to, to send their questions. I, I was chuckling to myself uh, just then because I was reading Harry Carr from Sky Data asked who would win if uh, who would win the fight if Blair and Brown grew antlers and rutted light stags. Thanks for that, Harry. Um, but there's one uh, which a guy called Sean Geeney asks, which is, would Tony Blair support UK Labour or the independent group in a snap election? And, I, and I mean, I'll get your thoughts on that in a minute. And I suppose that the answer is he'll probably support Labour. Uh, but there's an interesting question about Tony Blair generally, isn't there, where I think you kind of alluded to it at the beginning, um, you know, how history will judge him. He's much more he's much more vocal these days, isn't he, in trying to have a, a role in British politics. But his, his polling is pretty pretty dire. We've talked about that on this on this pod before. Where, where do you see him? I mean, on that you can answer that question as well. Would, yeah, would he support the independent group? But I mean, where do you see his his role in the future? Is he just going to be someone that sort of pops up every so often to give his views on presumably Brexit and things, or do you think he's going to be someone that's listened to properly in the future? So let me start with the rutting stacks because I think. Um, <laughs> You know, Gordon Brown was the great clumping fist, and I think even Tony would uh, would would admit that Gordon was the was the the, the heavyweight of the two of them, at least physically. Um, uh, but I don't think they ever quite came to blows. And um, uh, you know, uh, and then in terms of you know, does he support uh, the independent group? Will he support Labour? Of course, he would support Labour. Um, I think. It is going to be possible, and it has to be possible, for um, Labour MPs to express sympathy for the Labour MPs that left the, the Labour Party. I think it's the right thing to do when you listen to someone like Luciana Berger. How can you not be sympathetic to her reasons for leaving? And I think you can, so you can have sympathy with the TIG. You can decide that what they did was a courageous thing. That it was up to them to do, and you can um, you can see them leave with sorrow uh, at the same time as um, campaigning against them and wanting Labour to win. So I think you know, um, I think many of us who are on the soft or centre left of the party despair at the puritanical streak that um, seems to be part of um, Labour at the moment. Um, but I think it's still the best vehicle for achieving. The goals that anyone on the centre-left wants to achieve and I can't see the independent group replacing that um, so you know I think for that reason you know I think you know Blair will continue to support uh, as will so many other Labour voters and supporters and then you know and then the and then the last question was um, um, uh, what was the last question uh, but just about Tony Blair and his role in British politics yeah so why, reason, reasonably yeah. unpopular right Tony Blair is massively unpopular in the polls. Almost every time he speaks out against Corbyn, it helps uh, Corbyn amongst his supporters. There are a few issues where the public can stomach listening to 
someone whose reputation has been um, transformed, um, not really since Iraq, but since he left office um, by successive Labour leaders, including Gordon, who kind of spent the first part of his premiership defining himself against Tony, and then Ed Miliband, who very clearly kind of ran on a anti-New Labour uh, ticket, uh, to Corbyn, who kind of then uh, put that on rocket boosters, not to mention the Tories attacking um, both Blair and Brown. So I think you know, where we are now is you know, probably the lowest point in um, their, in Blair's reputation. But I think he has the right to speak out as someone who, you know, I, people dislike what he says. People disagree with him, but he's still one of the best articulate communicators. He still is able to shape an argument uh, and uh, about uh, Brexit. And I think like any other, um, any other person who cares deeply about an issue and feels that they have a platform to speak out about it, I think he feels it would be wrong for him not to. So in a way, I think, you know, the question I find is not, why is Tony Blair on the radio speaking out? But why isn't Ed Miliband? Um, you know, and Gordon makes a few uh, interventions, but Ed Miliband seems remarkably quiet on um, so many things. It's interesting. And, yeah. and I think, you know... Well, I suppose, I suppose thinking this through, Ed Miliband's political career isn't necessarily over, whereas the... Uh, so he's got to operate in a Labour Party that's fundamentally different, whereas... Blair and Brown, okay, they can intervene in things, but they don't have to worry about the Labour Party so much, right? Well, maybe there's something more honest in um, speaking your mind and not caring what people think. Um, you know, and I think that's one of the things that people most like about um, Blair, and I think it's one of the things they most dislike about him. But um, uh, but he's not afraid to speak his mind, and you know, I think Gordon makes some well-chosen interventions at times too. You know, I think he was um, very helpful at the Scottish referendum, for example. Mm, mm. All right, well, we'll leave it there for today. Uh, Theo Bertram, thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much for having me. You've been listening to the Polling Matters podcast. A big thanks once again to my guest this week, Theo Bertram. If you like what you hear, please don't forget to like or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and other podcast apps. We are now on Spotify or tell a friend about us. Anything you can do to share the podcast and tell other people about us very much helps spread the word and we do appreciate it. But for now, thanks for listening.